Greetings, greetings, greetings. As we get into episode two of Queen Charlotte, we find Queen Charlotte, well, episode one ended with the new Queen of England realizing that her new husband's secrets are way deeper than what can be seen on the surface, very easily hidden from those who do not have direct access to the king and his whims. Her kingdom was small enough and far enough away that they were unaware of how deep his mental issues were and also because they were of Moorish descent and not generally invited to such contracts, such marriage contracts with the British Empire. Her brother jumped at the chance to sign that contract. Same day, marriage happening. Same day, that's a lot. And it happened in real life. That's the wild part. So now it was up to her to make the best of her situation. Let's see what happens. The queen wakes up the day after her wedding and her face is just very unhappy, very unsatisfied, and she removes her extremely heavy blankets, pulls her bell, and it's like a long cloth bell. She pulls it, and full staff members come in, and they are, so many of them, it's over a dozen of them, they're just milling all around her in her bedroom, and they're undressing her, taking off her night clothes, And then they, I guess they bathe her. They didn't show that part. But then they dress her in her her day clothes. They do her hair. They put on her jewelry. It's like a whole, it's a whole performance. Not a performance. It's a whole um, production. That's the right word. And then um, there's Brimsley following her as he does. She's excitedly chattering about her engagement diary because as queen, Okay, her king is is not there. He's not there. But, of course, she's now the queen. So, sure, she has. She's sure that she has, like, all kinds of things on her schedule. Um, She anticipates meeting with her ladies-in-waiting and going to the opera and attending art exhibits, things like that. But Brimsley informs her that she has no such engagements waiting for her at this time. But how is this true? She's the queen. She has the duty to be seen. He informs her that, of course, she's the queen. But right now, she is enjoying the privacy of her honeymoon. And that is the Western way of being that, for me, does not sit well with me. Because... That's a lie. There's no joy in this honeymoon. We're you see me, Brimsley. <laughs> We're in this house. He's not here. There's there's nothing going on on my honeymoon. The intentional lie to her face, telling her what she knows is not true. There's a saying I, I grew up hearing: "Don't piss on my head and call it rain." That's what he's doing. Telling her to her face. You're enjoying the privacy of your honeymoon. Brimsy, you right here with me. You know I'm not enjoying my honeymoon. That's not true. Let's put something on my calendar or something. That's not what she says then, but 
She goes through with the facade. She's 17 years old. She's in a new country. She's following what the kingdom says is the thing to do. This is the perfect life, right? So this is her um, her honeymoon bliss, so to speak. And it's the, the false image is, is maintained at such an uncomfortable um, level is, is astounding. But that's, that's their way. That's their day-to-day operation. So she repeats out loud, this is my honeymoon, trying to grasp the reality of her reality, her weird reality. She is just a beautiful, intelligent young lady all alone on her honeymoon. She's looking picture perfect, though. Picture perfect. She nods at Brimsley and continues to make her way to the breakfast table. Meanwhile, the king's mother is in her place, and she's seen in her full morning gown, sitting among four four others. They're all men, equally fully dressed, in very stiff clothing, stockings and pilgrim shoes. They're all being served by um, red-coated servants that's all around them. And they're discussing the wedding, which they're saying Parliament is saying, uh, labeling, titling, defining as the great experiment. And they're referring to the king's mother's spontaneous decision to give out titles to people who look like the new queen. And that is problematic on all sides because just because someone has a similar heritage or skin tone doesn't mean that they are connected in a way that is beneficial to that new queen, in a way that's helpful to her. She doesn't even know them. But it was not a thought out move. It was very, very hasty and um, made out of desperation. And it wasn't for the queen. It was all a part of the cover up of her son's, what her son is lacking in his character. So, and it's also a power and control move. There are no parameters. Just like she gave the titles, she can take them away. She's in power and control over those titles. They really mean nothing, actually, outside of the picture, the image, the picture perfect image. Um, Lord Butte. Lord Butte is the direct voice of um, negativity. <laughs> he doesn't believe in anything. And he's just waiting for the king's mother to fail in any kind of way because then he would be in power and control. And he could make the moves and the decisions that she's now making. But one thing the king's mother is not going to do is give up her power. Nope. She's shake. She's fanning herself intensely because everything is perfect. She's perfect. The great experiment is perfect. King Georgie is perfect, and Lord Butte is there with his piercing eyes, looking at her constantly. His eyes. He doesn't even blink. I don't think he doesn't appear to have any eyebrows, no eyelashes, no facial hair of any kind. Very very pale skin. He never smiles. But everything must be perfect according to his idea of perfect. Mm. The king's mother does not care what anybody else has to say about 
what's going on. She said he, the king, made all of those decisions, although she actually made them. She said the king is, um, the king is the king. And the new queen is lucky to have been able to marry him. And that's it. She's trying to avoid the question that they're all there wanting to know. Did they perform the marital act last night? The goal is to have as many children as possible, period. And the king's mother doesn't know whether or not her son performed the marital act last night. But she cannot appear not to know. She can't ad- She cannot admit that she does not know. She can't be honest. That is not their idea of perfection. Perfection is controlled. Every aspect is controlled. All aspects are known. Everything is known and controlled. So she chooses to speak of her own marriage night and the seven people that were in her bedchambers when she and her husband performed, engaged in the uh, marital act that created Georgie, as she calls him. So she's giving her explanation of why she doesn't have an answer at that moment. She just she doesn't say that's why she doesn't know. She's just giving an idea of com- uh, compare and contrast. So in her bedroom, there were seven people. They didn't have to ask anybody the next day. Everybody knew that, yes, they did engage in the marital act. And then nine months later, she had Georgie. Or seven months or eight months. I forget how many months it was. Um, then they get into Georgie's wedding night, right? And they all agree, first of all, that the king, King George III, is absolutely perfect. But he does have his own mind. He's very independent. Uh, he's an original thinker, they say. Um, they're, they're, they're going all around the bush. No, they're not going around the bush. They beating the hell out of the bush trying to avoid saying what they really want to say or asking what they really want to ask, did he or did he not consummate his marriage? Lord Butte reminds her that the great experiment must be a success. And then he leaves. And the question of the marital act lingers in the air behind him. So then we see Charlotte at her breakfast table, surrounded by a dozen or so servants. The servants are all standing stiffly at attention, Um, Breakfast table is full of, I mean, chock full of beautiful flowers and um, adornments and fruit and different foods and the possibility of George coming to breakfast is there because his chair is there, although it's empty. The servants are ready and waiting to help her cut up her food and do whatever. They'll probably even feed her if she wants them to, but she decides to feed herself and while she's doing so, she looks down at um, the empty chair across at the other end, at the far end of the table. And she just stares at it for a minute. Is he a beast? Is he a troll? You know? So then they change her clothes. They redo her hair. And she's looking out the window. Like, she's really, like, not doing nothing all day. She goes to lunch where she eats alone again in silence and her staff watches her again in silence. This is her honeymoon. She actually does have a quick 
very quick smile with one of the staff. And then um, she continues to eat her lunch. We see her getting undressed um, by her servants, getting ready for bed. Just the amount of clothing, jewelry, shoes, food, and people that it takes to move through this entire day of doing nothing is crazy. I hope the servants at least got to eat some of that food. It looked delicious. And hopefully if they have families, I don't know, they don't show their lives outside of um, their work day. Um, hopefully their families got to eat some of that or I don't know. But um, it seems like such a waste for just one person. But she is the queen of England. So the king's um, mother may not know that George did not consummate the marriage but all those staff people that are around the queen every day and night they know the king did not spend the night with the queen so there's no way that the marital act occurred uh, the facade continues the next day as his chair remains empty at breakfast lunch and dinner again she um explores her home though she begins to explore her home and she found um books and so books become her company at um breakfast lunch and dinner she even tries to outrun brimsley (laughs) at some at one point but he's right there with keeping the five paces to the left to the right even during the run after a few days of not so blissful a honeymoon she just she just yells out in her bed chambers yells out into the emptiness of her lonely bedroom Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus I'm in a period of emotional people is that all the oh I don't care crap A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian Pigeon Mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. (laughs) Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Way, rated PG-13. May be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramount+. We see the printing presses actively printing up the gossip. Lady Whistledown wastes no time with the talk. She says, patience is not always a virtue. The passing of time doesn't always reap benefits and perhaps good things do not always come to those who wait. In other words, you gotta move. You got to take action, sitting back and waiting for everything to come to you or waiting for other people to do what they're going to do. That's not always the move. She does say, however, there are some very special joys, well worth the wait. And she shows one of the ladies in waiting with her grandchildren. And so there's important, the importance of discernment is, is that particular lesson, knowing when to be patient and wait like when the grandchildren are from a marriage that is stable and producing children and when 
there's action that needs to be taken. In their case, in royal marriages, the need to produce an heir is a serious situation. So we see the elder Queen Charlotte going back and forth with a few of her sons. Um, their one son in particular is asking for permission to marry the woman he is choosing to marry, but Queen Charlotte sitting with her Pomeranian in her lap. I think that's her favorite, her favorite child is her Pomeranian. So she's petting her Pomeranian in her lap and she's saying, no, that woman is not suitable. Break up with her, find somebody suitable. And all the other sons are, are going back and forth with her and they're saying, like they're trying to tell her, give it up. They're smoking and they're drinking and they're talking about the things that they like to do. Obviously, they have not bought into the facade. They are spoiled. They're kind of like their father. They do what they want to do. They don't care about what they're supposed to do because they know that the royal house will cover up anything they're doing anyway. So if it's quote-unquote wrong, and if it's right, then they'll play it up. If it's wrong, they'll just hide it. So they live their lives. They don't care about the facade. The facade is not their job. Queen Charlotte, however, does have to produce, continue to help produce an heir. She and King George did have 15 children, 13 of whom have lived to adulthood, but that's it. Nobody has had a legitimate heir, and that's a problem. That's a serious problem. Um, Her sons tell her, our sisters are past childbearing age and you don't accept none of our our wives or our choices for wives. And there is one son. He's kind of questionable. Does he even like women? Because he's like, she asked him, like, where's your wife? He's like, I haven't seen her in 20 years. So he probably doesn't even like women. But the point is, out of the 13 living children, Nobody is producing an heir, and it just takes her back. We see her going back in memory to a time when she was at a crossroads, not knowing whether or not she and her own husband would produce any children. And we see her back at her table, and she's trying to cut. It looks like a little lamb chop, and she's having trouble with it because I guess that's not something she was used to eating back where she came from. So she puts down the silverware in frustration and tells Brimsley to ready the carriage because she is going to see her husband. She has had enough of waiting for her husband to decide to come and see her. So we see her carriage pull up to another huge, beautiful, beautiful house and hundreds of servants are just milling about. And so they see the carriage coming up so they're out there waiting for her to come up. And she gets out and, and um, her husband, the king's main servant, you see him running from a building off to the side of the main house. And he runs up to meet the carriage and she's like, where's my husband? And he points to the observatory. So they all want to follow and she tells him, no, I'm going to see my husband. So it's nice that they're able to request that type of privacy even though the servants know a lot, a lot, a lot, they don't necessarily know everything. So she gets to go into the observatory and um, see her husband. So she walks in and um, King George is like, 
hi, Charlotte, how are you? And he's just doing his thing. And she's like, he's acting like it's no surprise that she's there. And he's trying to tell her about his hobby, about the stars. And, you know, and she's like, George, what's wrong? She gets right to it. Did I do something? Did I say something? Did I offend you in any way? What's wrong with me? She admits that she actually thought that he was with other women at a brothel even, which is a whorehouse. But he tells her to stop being unreasonable. She's being unreasonable. Not him. She is. So she lets him know that she could even understand if he had been at a a brothel, but she doesn't get why this astronomy hobby of his is more imp- more important than their wedding night together, their honeymoon. She points out that he's been through, um, she's been, that he's been in that room ever since their wedding night. Wow. You know, he keeps correcting her. This is not a room. It's an observatory. And he's so proud. It's the only one in England. Note, again, her being a Moor, this is not new to her. Because, well, let me say of Moorish descent. She's not a full Moor. She's not fully, fully black. But Moorish people brought those type of things to that part of the world. Because back in, on the continent of Africa, there was a different... Um, natural environment and people like the Dogon people D-O-G-O and Dogon people still to this day have a connection to the cosmos and they were actually able to see astronomical things occur without the use of a telescope but they did however help develop it and when it got to Europe it got developed it got developed it got developed and to the point where um, King George was able to um, dive into that and explore it. And that's beautiful. But he didn't have a couple of days. He, even on his wedding night, he went back to the observatory. That's what made it like weird. There's nothing wrong with being an intellectual, being, being into astronomy or anything else. But on his wedding night, because he didn't want to get married. <laughs> That's not what he wanted to do. He wanted to live his life. Much like her own children when she gets to be grown. And she sees that in her children. They want to do what they want to do. Not what the crown wants them to do. But he obliged the crown. And he got married to Queen Charlotte. And then he got right back to what what was important to him. So she's there now. She gets to see it. So he's trying to share that with her. But she keeps going in a room. And he's trying to correct her, you know. But she doesn't care about any of that. She's been, you know, just at that house all alone. I remember her saying, though, because she said when she says to him that she's been at the house being changed three times a day like a doll. And I do remember her saying that same thing to her brother the day that her brother signed her over to be married to this man, to this very strange man. And now she had to get, then she had to get dressed and get in the carriage and ride over from um, her country to their country. And her brother called her, told her she was sitting there like a statue. And now she feels like she's a doll. 
and they speak to the women's struggle in such patriarchal environments and societies where the women are actually very powerful, but they're not able to move freely in their power the way that some of the men are. A man such as King George is free to enjoy the stars as if he has no other duties. He doesn't have to fit into the idea of perfection the way she does. That is not his top priority. He came out of his shell. He performed the marriage duty, he had a good time, but then he got back to what he what was important to him. He had that luxury. He had that luxury. Everyone else is serving his whims. Meanwhile, she has nowhere to go, no one to talk to, nothing to do, because the facade of of their honeymoon is currently in process, in progress. So he's real flip about it, like, you're the queen, you can do what you want to do. He does not want to hear her complaints. I don't have nothing to do, I don't have no friends, and then I... He, she just wants to spend time with her husband, and he can't get that. He cannot get that. And he start, he's just staring at her like he's just frustrated with her request for his time. He, he really doesn't get it. George is, like, really oblivious. So she spells it out for him, literally. She says, I am 7 and 10 years old. That's their way of saying 17. I am suddenly a queen. I'm in a strange country with strange food, strange customs. She tells him he doesn't understand because it's his world. That's what he was born into. And he's not trying to understand. She's explaining to to him that as the queen, she's not allowed to do the things he's allowed to do. She's not allowed to go anywhere. She's not allowed to make friends with anyone. She has to be separate from everybody. He's the only one she's made any real personal contact with. And she's trying to fill him in to the depth of her loneliness. (sighs) She comes there and she finds him. Because she was ready to be like, I have to compete with other women. Let me see what kind of women he likes or whatever. You know, trying to see what's going on. But then she finds out she has to compete with the sky. How do you compete with the sky for somebody's attention? That's wild. So he's standing there and he's looking like he hears her. But he doesn't respond. Mind you, when he met her, he told her he likes good conversation That's definitely not good conversation, King George. Queen Charlotte literally has to pull a response from him by yelling his name, George, say something. And all he has for her is, I don't want to fight with you. But she asks him to do just that. Fight with me. Fight for me. The king's response to his queen, his brand new queen, pouring her heart out to him, letting her know just how lonely, how very, very lonely she truly is, is for him to yell at her, go home, Charlotte. And so she leaves. 
it's really not looking too good as far as those two getting together and making babies. The king's mother calls George's um, main servant and Charlotte's main servant together. They call she calls them in for questions about the relationship. How is the relationship going? She and her, um, I guess, administrators, court administrators, I don't know, royal administrators, want to know what's going on. Have they engaged in the marital act? The servants tell her that it appears to be going well. Nobody likes to be honest, upfront and honest. Um, The king's mother knows her son, though. And she refuses to believe the report that her son is, quote-unquote, smitten with the queen's beauty. She's not buying it. Charlotte's uh, servant, her main servant, Brimsley, doesn't try to go and give that kind of report that um, he knows what they're feeling. But he does say they they talk a lot, and they're doing a lot of walking and talking. (laughs) But Lord Butte gets to the main reason that they're even meeting. Have they had sex? Now, at that point, the servants feel pressured to lie. So they said, yes, the marital act has been performed. So the scene cuts to another boring (laughs) marital sexual encounter for the Danburys, well, not boring for Mr. Danbury because he's doing his thing regardless of what's going on with his wife. Meanwhile, she's rolling her eyes in boredom and he sounds like he's about to choke his own self to just, ah, 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 ah. it's just horrible, horrible, horrible sex, <laughs> horrible. Um, and she's just so... Oh, she's so frustrated that he disturbed her tea time for that. Like, ew. His sexual energy has increased recently, ever since he got that title. And she's discussing this increased activity with her maid while she's taking one of her baths. It's just too much for her. Now that he has that title, he has expectations of being treated according to that title. But his title doesn't mean anything to the ones who he's trying to get in good with. His skin color means way more than his title to many of the British people he's trying to be accepted by. So he's taking out his frustration and that extra energy on her by having sex with her as often as possible. And uh, the maid lets her know that she's hearing that to be the truth, not the sex, but like being rejected. Um, If you're non-white and recently titled, being rejected, not being able to get into the clubs and to the hunting, not being allowed to play the reindeer games, so to speak. And she's, Lady Zambari is just too thrilled with her husband trying to be accepted by people who don't want to accepts him um but you know that's that's his um that's his way of dealing with the title hers is just she just wants to live her life her biggest thing is though with all the increased sex is the increased possibility that he may impregnate her with 
as she says, another one of his big, <laughs> gigantic babies. Meanwhile, Charlotte is definitely not pregnant. Um, she's still eating alone at her dining room table. And the two main servants, the king's main servant and her main servant, are just, they know they have to come up with something because now they've told a lie. And eventually in nine months or a year or whatever, if she, if the couple have not had sex, she's not going to be pregnant with any, any babies. So they knew they had to come up with something. And so we see Charlotte walking the grounds, trying to pick some fruit for herself. But Brimsley, Brimsley's there right behind her ordering um, servants to pick her oranges for her. We also see a servant hand Brimsley a note from the king. And he reads the note and he lets Charlotte know that um, there's a surprise for her from the king. And he hands her the note and the note says, I never want you to feel lonely. And it's a glimpse of the man that she met in the garden not too long ago. The man who really did have good conversation with her. The man who was not the beast and the troll that he's being right now. And it brings a smile to her face. So she goes looking for the gift and she finds out it's a Pomeranian dog. But she does not think it is a dog or like the size of the dog. So instead of (laughs) referring to it as a dog, she refers to it as a deformed bunny and walks away from it in frustration. It is adorable, though. It's super adorable. So she's at the dinner table again. This time, her gifted Pomeranian is seated on George's side of the table, staring at her while she eats. And we see Brimsley caring for the dog way more than she does. We don't see her caring for the dog at all. Um, At first, in frustration with her overly quiet honeymoon, she tells Brimsley she wants to meet her ladies-in-waiting although it's still her quiet honeymoon time. It's just she needs to do something. Brimsey lets her know it wouldn't be wise to meet with all of them, but perhaps meeting with um, a sense of discretion would be okay. And so she asks him if Lady Danbury would be considered a person of discretion, and he nods in agreement. And so Lady Danbury and Queen Charlotte have their very first tea time together. And at first they are very, very, very formal. Lady Danbury makes a um, a comment about her cute little dog, which Charlotte again refers to as a deformed bunny. Lady Danbury thanks her for the invitation and she asks her if she's meeting with all of the ladies-in-waiting on an individual basis. And Charlotte tells her that she was Brimsley's idea because she is a person of discreet character and it is her honeymoon time, so discretion is necessary. And she turns to Brimsley and smiles and he's looking at her like, why did you tell her all of that? So she turns back to um, Lady Dansbury and says, trying to fix, like, obviously her mistake in words. And she says her honeymoon is going wonderfully and her husband is the best husbands of all husbands and lady danbury sees all the way through the lie and she asks to be allowed to speak freely charlotte gives brimsley a nod and the room full of servants is cleared out charlotte takes the deepest of exhales and asks lady danbury to please speak freely 
because no one else does. Lady Danbury moves closer to Charlotte, breaking the formal feeling of their meeting, and she gets really real with her, letting her know that, first and foremost, Charlotte is a terrible liar, and that she should not try that lie about having a quote-unquote wonderful honeymoon in front of society. Don't ever do that. She shares her own disastrous honeymoon story, and she lets her know that if her wedding night was not perfect and sparks didn't fly and all of that stuff, it's okay. But from Charlotte's facial expression, Lady Danbury realizes that Charlotte didn't have a wedding night. And after a brief pause, Charlotte let everything out. She told her all about the loneliness and he didn't talk to her and he left and all of that stuff. Lady Danbury is like, okay, all of that, but did you consummate the marriage? Charlotte is blank-faced. Did you engage in the marital act? Charlotte is blank-faced. Charlotte has no idea what she's talking about. And the thing is, without having performed the marital act, Charlotte's position as queen is in jeopardy. Not only is her position as queen in jeopardy, but Lady Danbury's position as lady is in jeopardy. The great experiment is also in jeopardy. So she's like really trying to encourage her and let her know, you know, Let's, she calls um, Brimsley, let's get into the marital act and what that means. So she calls um, for Brimsley to bring some drawing paper and some charcoal. And we see them going over the pictures <laughs> that Lady Danbury draws up. So they're looking at it like it's a picture book, right? And Charlotte has questions. Well, how many times does he insert it? And Lady Danbury says as many times as necessary, Your Majesty. It's all about making babies, right? And Charlotte's like, well, how long does it take? And um, Lady Danbury tells her that is, you know, it depends on, you know, the person or whatever. It's just a very clinical discussion about sex. And Lady Danbury sees it as a chore. It's not a big deal. It's just something you have to do. But she does acknowledge that it might be different with someone you really like. And Charlotte says she doesn't even like George. So she doesn't see why it's even necessary for them to even go through this marital acting. It's quite unnecessary to her at this point. So Lady Danbury tries to educate Charlotte in the kindest way possible because she she is still the queen. But she's a young queen and she needs to understand that they are in Britain And Britain has a past history of actually beheading queens who do not produce babies for the king that they're married to. So, and she also reminds her, you're the first of your kind. You must secure your position. Charlotte gives all of that. I'm the first of my kind and I need to secure my position and the great experiment, all of this stuff, right? But Charlotte's like, 
I don't mind going back to not being a queen. Uh, she doesn't mind letting go of her position and just going back home. It has been a miserable, miserable few days since she got there. So then we see Elder Lady Danbury and Elder Queen Charlotte having tea. And they're discussing the issue of Queen Charlotte's children not having any children. And then we see um, Viscountess Violet Bridgerton come into the room. Um, she joins uh, Lady Danbury and Queen Charlotte for their tea. And she's actually been invited, special invitation by Queen Charlotte as an expert. So Violet is like an expert because she's like, what am I an expert on? And Queen Charlotte lets her know in getting her children married off. She asks Violet how she does it. And Violet says quite easily that it's love. It helps if the children are in love. In Violet's world, love solves a plethora of issues, as she states. And so Charlotte is like love. Her boys are in love with commoners, Catholics, actresses, women who are already married to somebody else. And that definitely brought me to mind about first Charles and Diana. I remember the story about um, Charles wanting to be with, what's the lady he's with now? Clamilla? I don't remember her name, but I remember the, the royal family did not want him to be with, what's her name? Because she had been, she was older and she had already been married and divorced and they just did not want um, Charles with her. So they picked Diana for him and it was disastrous. Poor Diana. Um... And Diana was doing things that weren't in line with the British um, image. And she ended up not um, being with Charles. And Charles ended up being with the woman he wanted to be with anyway. But the queen did get her two grandsons out of the deal um, between the marriage between Charles and Diana. And so even with Queen Harry... The kingdom did not, the British kingdom did not want Harry to be with Meghan. Um, and they didn't want Charles to be with the lady who he's with now too, I believe. What's her name? Oh my gosh. Anyway, so with Meghan and Harry leaving Britain, that's a big deal. They left, they came to America and the British... Monarchy, of course they're racist. Absolutely. Everything they got is all those crown jewels are not theirs. They didn't come from Britain. They came from the colonies. So many things. So many things. Uh, slavery. They love to talk about how they stopped slavery. You started it. What you mean? Anyway. Um, it's just interesting after being accused on a Netflix docuseries of all the racism that they took Megan through now after Queen Elizabeth's death, they want to have all this quote unquote inclusivity and invite all these um, people that are generally not invited 
just like the Bridgerton series, but in real life, we're seeing it in real life. They're doing it again. Um, but it's just interesting how when they got accused of racism, they tried to have all these black people there at King Charles coronation, but it don't mean nothing. They're not going to change what they did, what they do. They're not going to give the the Benin bronzes back out of their museums. They're not going to, um, well, not going to get off all into that. I just love that the Caribbean, a lot of the Caribbean islands don't want to be under the British colonizing colonization rule anymore. I think that's beautiful. But anyway, um, Queen Charlotte lets Violet know that love is not actually an issue. Her children, her son specifically, have already produced over 50, that's a lot of kids, 50 illegitimate babies for the crown. Love is not an issue. Violet is so flustered by that response and she tries to, to turn the discussion over to Lady Danbury. And Lady Danbury lets Violet know that she is not an expert. She has four children who have moved away from not only the country of Britain, they've moved continents away. They moved out of Europe completely. She says marriage is a duty. Marriage is not a pleasure, but that is her perspective because she was raised to be married to an older man and produce children for him. Um, not unlike Charlotte, not for a title, but for a position. So that's very, very similar to Charlotte's situation. Violet is still with the idea of love and pleasure in marriage because that was her experience. Lady Dansbury reinforces that uh, marriage can be painful and a lifelong sentence. <laughs> My God. She and Charlotte didn't have the experience of love and satisfying pleasure that, that Violet had. So their perspectives most definitely differ. Violet says marriage is companionship, tradition, and family. Queen Charlotte didn't have that in her husband. Lady Danbury didn't have that in her, with her husband either. The companionship uh, with her husbands was missing. The traditions were not their own, but rather the traditions of a land, a country, a kingdom that was not fully accepting of who they were. And they had family, but within that context, it was problematic. So Charlotte is nauseated by the love aspect of Violet's answer, but she gets Violet's point. And from that, she decides that she will find her sons suitable wives to marry and let them worry about the love part later, after there are royal babies. And again, that reminds me of uh, now King Charles, because they didn't want him to have children with the lady he's with now. So they married him off to Diana. Um, she, Diana gave him two sons. And now King Charles is married to who he wants to be married to. Um, but yeah, so Queen Charlotte calls Brimsley 
to begin the process, which is a list of eligible brides across Europe that's about to be drawn up. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. So we're back to young Queen Charlotte, young Sad, lonely, frustrated Queen Charlotte and her little dog, too. (laughs) He's whining at the end of her bed. So she brings him up a little closer to her and she tells him to go to sleep. She names him Pom Pom. So cute. The king's main servant meets with Brimsley again and they discuss the gifted Pomeranian that they came up with and the quote-unquote, secret meeting between the Queen, Charlotte, and Lady Danbury because it's no longer a secret. The servants talk, and the palace knows about the meeting. Brimley's, Brimsley's like, okay, whatever. The palace knows. But what is, what's going on with the king? What's with your man? <laughs> He's like, why is he not coming to her bed? There's no viable explanation. Then we see Lady Danbury preparing to meet with the king's mother. She, at that point, has no idea why she's being called to the palace. But what she does know is her husband does not like it. He's the one that got recognized by the king's mother as having a connection to the late King George. And he's like, you're nobody. Why would they want you? Which is such a mean thing to say. But Lady Danbury plays a position She tells him, you're right, I am nobody. The only reason they probably want me to visit or to come, they invited me because I am your wife. I'm connected to you. And she promises him to tell him every single detail of the meeting, which calms his nerves. He kisses her hand and, um, yeah, she makes her way to the palace. Now, Lady Dansbury... Dansbury. Lady Danbury is very, very smart. She keeps the business at hand and she knows that when it's business, we both give and we both get. It's not about I just give and that's the end of it. No, it goes both ways. So she gives them tidbits about the meeting that they keep asking her about. She gives them little tidbits to snack on. She keeps it honest. She doesn't tell lies, but she also doesn't give them everything she has. The king's mother was being very demeaning. She called her girl. Tell me what I want to know, girl. It was so disgusting. And Lady Danbury calmly reminded her that she is now Lady Danbury. The king's mother must have forgotten for a minute about that great experiment and the titles that she gave her. And she said, excuse me, Lady Danbury confidently reminded the king's mother of her title. Her title is Lady Danbury, your highness. 
the title you were so kind to bestow upon me, Lady Agatha Danbury. She shared that the new queen was very unaware that her title was so shiny and new. So that was like a, a very veiled, thinly veiled threat because she said that would be a nice topic for our next tea. So there is a pause because the king's mother is recognizing that she not playing with um, no, no stupid girl right there. She called her a girl, but what she not going to call her is a stupid girl. So they wanted to handle her. The, um, the man that was sitting next to the king's mother wasn't a Lord Butte. It was some other lord. And he was like, let me handle her. If Lord Butte was here. And the king's mother was like, no. We are going to speak in a womanly way. So she um, excused the the guy that was talking. He left the room. And they began to speak with each other. And... The king's mother understood that Lady Danbury had a connection with Charlotte in a way that she did not. And Lady Danbury was very ready, willing, and able to play her entire position. She was not like her husband, Lord Danbury. She didn't she wasn't willing to be anything they wanted her to be or say anything anything they wanted her to say just to be accepted. Acceptance wasn't enough. She understood the whole thing, the whole game, the facade. So once the king's mother was um, alone in the room, she and Lady Danbury, um, she told her. She came out and said that she was surprised by her personality because she had thought Lady Danbury was a quiet one. That's what she said. I thought you were a quiet one. Mm. Lady Danbury said, I'm not quiet. It's just that my husband is loud. Mm. King's mother thought she was foolish like her husband, but clearly she was not. I wonder if they would have been so quick to bestow those titles if they knew just how brilliant she was. So the king's mother tried to uh, to flip her aggressive questioning. She's still coming with that little acceptance piece because most people who are left out year after year after year, getting let in is like a big deal to them. But she underestimated Lady Agatha Danbury. She underestimated her greatly. So the king's mother was like saying... um, I need a, an ear, a trusted ear at Buckingham House. And she asks Lady Danbury to be that trusted ear. Do you understand? And Lady Danbury says she understands. And then the king's mother had the nerve to say, well, then, as if the, the business was done. The business was not done. The king's mother thought that Lady Danbury would be um would just be that ear because she asked her to, but Lady Danbury reminds the king's mother of British tradition, her own tradition. When a title is bestowed, it is not in name only. It comes with income and land and estate. Without those things, 
a title is empty. It's just simply words, you know? And if you want something from me, I want something from you. It's business. It's not personal. We all have needs. So the king's mother tries to be little Lady Danbury with the statement, you want money. Lady Danbury did a little chuckle at that. And she continues to remind the king's mother of things that the king's mother seems to have forgotten. Like the reason that George's grandfather, the late king, knew the Danbury family was because Lady Danbury's father-in-law is also a king. And she knows that the country of her birth, Sierra Leone, is very rich. We already have money. We have more money than most of the people that are around us. What she needed was for her husband's title to be respected. She was asking for recognition beyond just the title. The king's mother is taken aback by the request because she wasn't ready for a request that that wasn't just about money. Because, look, it's easy to throw money at somebody you see as beneath you. Long as they don't, they don't rattle, you know, too much. Money, yeah, here, money. Money, money. As much money as they got out of the colony, colonies and the diamonds that they got out of Sierra Leone. <laughs> Whew. The king's mother told Lady Danbury she should be grateful. Should, the king's mother should be grateful. Lady Danbury reminds the king's mother she is asking for her help because her situation is serious. Her position as the king's mother, her son's position as the king, is just as in jeopardy as the Lady Dan- Lady and Lord Dan- Danbury's position. If the great experiment fails, it fails for all of them. Not just Queen Charlotte, not just Lady Danbury and Lord Danbury, but also for King George III and the king's mother. Her power and control would be no more and the House of Lords would take over everything she's doing right now. So the king's mother is tight. (laughs) She tells Lady Danbury to be careful. Lady Danbury tells her, we can be careful together. (laughs) I love it. We see Charlotte all caught up in her routine again, getting dolled up again to go to her next meal. But this time, she has a real surprise. George is at the table. She curtsies to the king, as is the tradition, and he stands up for her. He asks if it is all right for him to just to join her for a meal, and, and he's smiling And he's like his mother in that way, as if Charlotte should just be grateful he showed up. And Charlotte's like, a meal? A meal? She picks up her skirt and she just walks away from the dining room real quickly, just as fast as she possibly can in that kind of outfit. 
And um, he's like, Charlotte, 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 where you going or whatever? And she's like, anywhere that's away from you. So he commands her to stop and listen to him. And he says all the right things about understanding the reasons she doesn't like him or trust him. He asks for just one evening of her time and he fully shares his observatory with her. They view the planet Venus together through his telescope and he tells her he's been studying Venus and how that will help them know the distance from Earth to Sun. The transit of Venus is what they call it. Studying Things like that helps him remember he is just a bit of dust, although he has been given so much power, so much attention, he's still just a small dot in the universe. He says being king is a hazard and it's made him selfish. He's all lovey-dovey and apologetic and she smiles. I mean, she's 17. She she wants to be in love. She wants the fairy tale to be true. So she says she does not forgive him yet. And she smiles. And you know it's on when she smiles. And they agree to try again, to try their relationship again. And they kiss, but she stops him right there. And she asks him if he's coming home to Buckingham House. And he says yes. And you see his things being moved to Buckingham House. And they travel separately, and he tells her they have to, as part of the rules of succession, just in case she is carrying the next um, the next king. And they're going to get to work on creating that next king that night. So Charlotte is smiling, smiling. Uh, the servants prepare her, and she enters her king's bedroom for the first time. And that bedroom is beautiful. It's the bed is huge and you can see the heavy because it's cold where they live. So you have the heavy blankets and the fireplace is burning and all the candlelight. It's really beautiful. And it's reminiscent of the first day that they met each other and kissed each other. And he asked her if she knows what's going to happen. And she says yes, because she has seen drawings and received a detailed explanation <laughs> So Charlotte has her first night with her king, but again, she wakes up alone. We see Lord and Lady Danbury pulling up to their new estate on a large portion of land, and their children have been given a spot at an elite school, and there are cattle on their land according to the letter that Lord Danbury had received. He is ecstatic. He tells his wife that it happened because the king just suddenly, magically sees him for who he is. His value, his worth is all tied up into external belief. They see him, so now he's happy. Mm. He says the king understands the old days are over and this is a new world. Men are men, no matter where they come from. Lord Danbury, poor thing. There is a gentle moment between Lord and Lady Danbury where she takes his hand and, you know, knowing what she knows about how this all really came about. And she says, perhaps this is the beginning of a new era. 
And I think at that point, that was the opportunity for them to have a new beginning. Just as like, you know, Charlotte and King George were having their chance at a new beginning, Lady and Lord Danbury could have had a new beginning if he had spoken to her and really seen her. But he was just so full of himself. All he had to say was women, woman, hush. And um, he said he's going to go try that key in the door, which he does. And Lady Danbury just smiles to herself and follows him on into their new estate. Then we see Charlotte walking through the halls, cuddling her little dog now, explaining to Brimsley that the king has either gone out for a ride or a walk, but she wants to hold breakfast for him because she wants to eat with him, despite all of the extremely red flags that she's seen she is still believing in her fairy tale life. But Brimsley has to let her know that he has actually not gone out. He actually has a visitor. That visitor is his mother. So she hands the Pomeranian over to Brimsley as she hears an inkling of the conversation between the king and his mother. And she tells Brimsley to hold back and she moves up a little bit. And she hears the king's mother tell him, your marriage is palace business. Your marriage is parliament business. Your marriage is the business of this country. And she needs to know if he has properly bedded her. Sheesh, imagine overhearing that. So she hears the king say, And this is the hardest part because she knows the king's mother feels a way about her. So it's whatever. But when she hears this next, these next words out of his mouth, it's kind of devastating because she hears him say, you told me I had to wed for the crown. I did. You told me to charm her, to make it easier for the crown. I have done my best. You told me I could not let her know me because I must protect the secrets of the crown. I have not let her know me. You told me to bet her. I have done so. I understand I was born for the happiness or the misery of a great nation. I am the picture, the picture of duty. The crown resides within me, embedded like a knife. Charlotte hears all that coming out of her husband's mouth and she decides to have her breakfast no need to wait for the king we see the elder charlotte on her long di- at her long dining table alone pomeranian in her lap staring at the king's still empty chair Brimsley brings her the list that she requested earlier, the list of suitable brides for her sons. And the staff stand around and watch her eat as she reads from that very short list of eligible brides. And the last scene goes back to young King George III. And his servant, his main servant, comes in and asks, and King George asks his servant, is my mother gone? And he is told that she is indeed gone. He asks where Charlotte is. And he is told that Charlotte is at breakfast. 
And then he lets go of all his decorum and almost falls into the seat next to him. And his, you can see his hand shaking. That's some stress and anxiety for your ass. He is wrecked. And his servant is like, should I get the doctor? And at first he says no, but he's shaking all over. And then he was like, okay, get the doctor. But Charlotte must never know about this. And the scene closes. Thank you.